Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and a teacher. And my guest today is Shane Carmichael. Shane Carmichael is a consultant and lecturer at University College London and Warwick Business School, who specializes in public leadership and organization development. He has a longstanding interest in the role of leadership and narrative in conflict, having grown up in Northern Ireland through the Troubles. As a graduate, former board member and consultant of the Washington Ireland Program for Service and Leadership, which is a U.S. Ireland cross-community development program, and having previously provided support to two of its sister programs focusing on conflict leadership and narrative in South Africa and Israel-Palestine. He has a crush on Colin McCann. That's our important fact about Shane Carmichael for this month's podcast. So welcome, Shane. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Doug. Thank you very much for having me along. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Today, your crush on Colin McCann is relevant because today we're going to discuss A Paragon, uh, the most recent novel by the Irish novelist Colin McCann. Uh, Colin McCann's originally from Dublin, but has lived in New York City since 1994. So I guess maybe we're blurring the lines of our contemporary American fiction remit on the podcast, but I think we're keeping in sync with one of the general ideas of the transatlanticist family of podcasts and sort of bridging the uh, American-European divide there. I should point out at this at this stage that if you're a reader who worries about listening to the podcast and coming across spoilers before you've read the book, uh, that won't be an issue today. Uh, as always on Novel Romantics, we try to avoid ruining plots for people, which is, you know, kind of us. And uh, in this case, I'm not even sure that would be possible anyway, which um, hopefully you'll discover along the way of our, our conversation today. Um, it's not really a, a novel with a plot that can be spoiled, I don't think. Um, Before we turn to A Paragon itself, uh, I'd like to ask you, Shane, what is it that you love about Colin McCann? Why the crush on Colin McCann? Um, That's a very good good question. I guess like all the great crushes, it it sort of uh, came upon me obliquely. It sort of snuck up on me a a little bit. I um, I guess like a lot of people who grew up in um, in Northern Ireland uh, through the seventies, eighties, and nineties, um, and and still today, um, the the, the Irish American relationship um, in all its forms, uh, p- politics, music, literature. Um, it's something that really um, it, it's a it's a, a really dominant uh, discourse and uh, and part of um, of of of, uh, of of our heritage. And um, I first um, came across McCann um, on the back of a program I uh, studied on in the summer of 1997, which was um, now known as the Washington Ireland Program for Service and uh, and Leadership, which was at that time a um, cross community leadership development program um, which was uh, essentially at its heart um, designed to bring young people who had shown an interest in social or public life uh, from uh, Protestant and Catholic uh, backgrounds from within Northern Ireland transplant them into new territory which happened to be uh, to be Washington DC and introduce them to the idea of, of public narrative or storytelling as a means to uh, to, to 
across some of the the, the divide um, that um, that um, sort of characterised our relationships or lack of relationships back at home. So that idea of storytelling um, and conflict um, came to me in 1997, and then when I came back from uh, from DC, um, I, uh, I I I picked up a McCann um, a McCann uh, book, but the book that really uh, drew me into his was a book called Let the Great World Spin, which um, essentially it follows a very similar sort of pattern to, to, to all of his work, which is as a sort of a, a fiction, non-fiction concept. And that really appeals to me because um, like any good Irishman, I like to live half my life in um, in the real world and the other half in a in a in a, fa- in a, in a world fantasy, of your own a fantasy, fabrication, a, a world of my own fabric fabrication, like all good 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 Irishmen. But 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 what I what I really liked about um, McCann as well, of course, that he was living in many ways a dream of you know he'd transplanted himself from Ireland as an author, he'd moved himself to New York, he'd written this extraordinarily sweeping story about um, an Irish um, immigrant uh, in New York, 1974, the year before I was born. And I, I lost myself in that book um, in the same way I've lost myself in um, in all of his books. But ultimately, I think what connects m- my, me to McCann and my love of McCann is very simple. It, it, he is a storyteller, but he's someone who understands the, the importance of stories. You know, he, he honors he honors stories and the and the and the role they can play in society. It's super interesting to me that you say that it's it's the fact that he's a storyteller and. I'm going to try and unpick a little bit why I find that so interesting. And it starts for me with a, there's a, a conversation, a sort of pr- a published conversation that Colin McCann had with the writer that I was going to, I was trying to just think how to describe him. This sort of Sarajevo Chicago writer is how I think of him in my head. Um, Alexander <laughs> Hamon. Um, well, because, you know, you can call him Bosnian, you can call him American, you can call him Bosnian-American. But I always think, like, Heyman writes about Sarajevo and Chicago primarily, and, 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 I, and I kind of mix them together in my head. Anyway, the Sarajevo-Chicago author, Alexander Heyman. Heyman and McCann did this conversation where they sort of traded emails back and forth, and then it was edited and published as, as a... Uh, in a literary magazine about maybe 2002 or three. And uh, in that, Colin McCann says that he prefers storytelling, the term storytelling, to overwriting. So he doesn't want to be pinned down as a writer in a kind of creative writing program kind of way, or, you know, you're a writer, you're not producing literature, you're a writer or mm-hmm. whatever. But storytelling was the key to him because it was the telling of stories that really that really mattered about what he was writing. It was, and, and that distinction mattered. And I, this never made sense to me. <laughs> I always thought, like, I've read this thing a lot of times and I teach it and it's never made sense to me because I always thought, why would you, like, it's, it seems artificial and like a pose until I read this book of Paragon. <laughs> and I thought, ah, it all clicked into place for me. So go ahead. But, but, it, but so that's, that's interesting. I, I, I haven't, um, I haven't come, I haven't certainly read that interview, but if we set it in the context of of McCann as an as an Irish um, author, mm-hmm. you know Ireland has a has a deep and rich history of of storytelling. Yeah, um, you know a, 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 a tradition that's still you know still quite um, uh, still quite live, um, and of course you know storytelling. I think it's an interesting observation that it was children, you know, the first thing we need is we need comfort and shelter, but the first things we ask for are stories. Mm -hmm. And um, Ireland has a particularly rich 
history of storytelling um, and the passing on of stories through uh, through spoken word and through um, and through song. Um, and, and I think McCann honours. I think that speaks to him. I think he sees this as a as a tradition, something that. He, He's carrying carrying forward, uh, and, I, and I think that's why he clings on to that, and perhaps that's why he writes in this um, in this uh, in this style. So, yeah, uh, but that's well, certainly why why it speaks to me. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I I think that's really interesting, and it's something that I kind of I I think despite the the interest that I have in in Irish literature and and Irish culture myself like I never could quite get my head around that but it really locked into place with this with this novel which is maybe a good way to to turn to the, to a paragon which is a really fascinating novel and it's a really fascinating piece of storytelling I think first and foremost a piece an interesting piece of storytelling so I'd like to set up what this novel is um, for our listeners by just um, in a couple of ways I want I want to first say what the word itself means um, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the novel and also um, read out the author's note that appears at the beginning so I think this locks in a lot of different strands that we you and I are going to talk about over the next um, uh, half hour, 45 minutes or so. So a paragon is um, a word that means a shape with a countably infinite number of sides. Um, and it really, so a, a, a countably infinite number of sides, um, which is a concept that you have to sit back for a while and get your head around. Um, and it's really the, the structuring, a part of the structuring or thematic concept behind this novel is that there's a ton of stories in this novel from all kinds of different angles, ki- all kinds of different sides, and you you can continually count them up and bring them in as you read them and try and understand what they mean, and they add up to this shape that keeps growing and growing as you read the novel. Now, the other thing that structures this novel is the um, 1001 Arabian Nights. So the novel is, is divided into 1001... I don't know if you would call them chapters or sections. Um, they're, they're relatively short, most of them. Some of them are only a sentence long. Some of them are an image. And some of them are several paragraphs long. It kind of depends, but they, they count up to 500. Then there's um, 1001 is in the middle of the, the novel on page 229, in fact. And then they count back down from 500 um, back to one. So there's 1001 stories told but each of those stories has its own sides and they and they create different sides themselves in conversation with one another so the the novel itself becomes a kind of um a paragon metaphorically now what the novel is actually about uh brings me to the author's note which i think explains quite carefully what this novel is about and this is what he says in the author's note Readers familiar with the political situation in Israel and Palestine will notice that the driving forces in the heart of this book, Bassam Aramin and Rami El-Hanan, are real. By real, I mean that their stories, and those of their daughters, Abir Aramin and Smadar El-Hanan, have been well documented in film and print. The transcripts of both men in the center section of the book are pulled together from a series of interviews in Jerusalem, New York, Jericho, and Beit Jalah. But elsewhere in this book, Bassam and Rami have allowed me to shape and reshape their words and worlds. Despite these liberties, I hope to remain true to the actual realities of their shared experiences. We live our lives, suggested Rilke, 
in widening circles that reach out across the entire expanse. And that last phrase in particular, in widening circles that reach out across the entire expanse, also captures something of the tone and theme and big-heartedness of the storytelling that makes up this novel. In, in its simplest way, it tells the story of these two men, one Palestinian, one Israeli, both of whom have had daughters uh, killed in different ways, one by a bomb and one by a soldier, during the, uh, the conflict uh, that goes on to this day in, in Israel and Palestine. To say that that's the story of this novel is really not to do it justice, <laughs> um, because, again, it is in a paragon itself. It, it has a shape with an... In, a, countably infinite number of sides in it. And it tells many other stories from around the world as it tries to tell the story of these two men involving themselves in what it means to have had their daughters um, killed in the way that their daughters were killed. So, Shane, wh- where is it um, that you think it's... A, wh- what's an interesting point in all in this a paragon of storytelling to really begin our discussion today? Um, well, perhaps, perhaps this this point uh, about McCann honouring the complexity of conflict and the complexity of of storytelling. So, I've heard him quote a, a line by John Berger on a number of occasions, which is uh, just paraphrasing, I think, but it's it's something akin to never again will a single story be told as if it were just one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's an interesting position to start from, because what it necessitates is if he is if he is honouring that, um, then his work is necessarily um, complex. So on the surface, this book can you know feel perhaps to someone approaching it sort of impenetrable. Um, it can feel on the surface perhaps slightly chaotic. But of course, what he's doing is he's he's honouring the complexity of life. He's honouring the complexity of conflict. He's honouring the complexity of stories. He's honouring that sort of interdependence. And I think that's quite rare, not just in his writing or in the the the, um, uh, the kind of literature that we consume today. I think it flies in the face of the nature of a lot of our public discourse and political discourse, which is to sort of either ignore or deny complexity. There's not enough space to honour complexity. There's not uh, there's not enough um, trust to allow um, discourse that is complex to play out. So we end up with a sort of slightly reductionist um, uh, narrative um, and 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 public discourse um, that he's he he's push he pushes against, and I, and I think that's quite quite brave. And I think it speaks to me because, you know, I growing up in a in a in a in Northern Ireland during the uh, during the troubles. I think I learned very early on that stories are complex. Uh, stories in conflict are particularly complex, and they are deeply inter- interdependent. But but I do wonder if that's something that's being lost in in um, in, in wider um, in wider life and wider discourse. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's I'm I'm gonna whether it's lost in wider public discourse is a is an interesting question because it then also leads to a, another question of like, well. How does the novel? How does the novel become um, a thing that can try and recuperate or or reignite that kind of public discourse, right? And also the story that he's telling, um, this kind of partly fictional, partly real story that he's telling in a paragon, 
asks those questions fairly explicitly, in fact. Um, and it's interesting to see what that approach, what that acknowledgement of, of other narratives and the, the, the openness to other narratives creates in mm-hmm. with respect to how you put together a novel that there's yeah. lots of stories, lots of these individual thousand and one stories. If you start to look at it, even though it's telling, there is a, there is a story arc of these two men all the way through the novel. It is also telling 1001 individual stories and how these then fit together and how Colin McCann in particular has really, it's a, it's an astonishing piece of work in the, in the way in which he's, position these stories in order to let them speak to each other without insisting that they speak to each other. So it doesn't have a cause and effect narrative in the way that, that say like, so like last month we were, we were discussing on this podcast, um, a detective novel or crime fiction by Attica Locke. And like in crime fiction, everything has to have consequence or it's not, you know, <laughs> the, the, the crime fiction doesn't make sense and you feel ripped off. Whereas here, there's no, there's no insistence on this leads to this leads to this. It's, it's like a, almost a collage of here is a story and here's another part of, of another story. And, and you're left as a reader to try and piece them together to illustrate what I mean by this. Maybe I, I'll just pick for what for me is one of the most striking examples. Um, this, this novel moves constantly between the personal stories of individuals to um, world political stories, facts, historical stories and facts. And, and just, um, I mean, I said a minute ago, collage, it creates a collage. It, it, it weaves them together. The, every metaphor seems a little bit slightly inept as a way of describing these things. But one of the things that's interesting is, is right in the opening few pages. So I think the eighth, is it the eighth story of the whole novel? And this, uh, it's not the eighth. And now that I said that it's the sixth, but it starts with the word eight. So I'm going to count that as a victory. Um, the, the sixth story of this novel, in fact, is one that I sent to you over the summer when I was reading this book. And I said, you got to read this book. Um, it's about, uh, it says eight days before he died after a spectacular orgy of food, Francois Mitterrand, the French president, president ordered a final course of Ortolan, a tiny yellow throated songbird, no bigger than his thumb. The delicacy represented to him the soul of France. And you get, um, a couple of pages or actually just one page. That describes Francois Mitterrand, the, the late president of France, eating this tiny bird, which is, I guess, illegal. Um, so they have to do it covered so that, you know, people haven't witnessed it. And, and it's this kind of, it's this interesting statement. It comes on the back of earlier, um, you know, just like two pages earlier at the beginning of the novel, a discussion of the migratory birds that pass over Israel and Palestine. So there's this image of birds. And in fact, someone finds what is unnamed, but is an ortolan while cataloging the birds that pass over in those early pages. And then you get this image of, of a world leader eating the bird. And then a hundred and some odd pages later, you get a one line story that mentions something that Francois Mitterrand said in that same story you just read. And then for me, what's really, really interesting here is it is there's a, there's a, a minor image in that scene of um, that people had to go out and put up these nets to in the forest to that the birds fly into and they get caught in it and then they pull them out alive 
and they take them to to serve them as food. Um, you also get the image of these nets being used to capture birds, to collect them and tag them for research purposes. And then what's really extraordinary to me, and which really floored me when I read it, is um, halfway through the novel, um, you get this uh, story, number 496, parts of the Atacama Desert in Chile have never had any recorded rainfall. It is one of the driest places on earth, but the local farmers have learned to harvest water from the air by suspending large nets to catch cloud banks rolling in from the Pacific coast. When the fog touches the tall nets, it forms drops of moisture. The water rolls down along the plastic strands and moves through small gutters collecting at the bottom of the net, where the trickle is funneled into a pipe that leads to a cistern. All across the landscape, high metal poles hold the dark nets against the pale sky. The fog is captured in the early morning before the sun burns the clouds off. Out of nothing, something... The farmers call the nets fog catchers. That was story number 495, a one-sentence story. Mm-hmm. And so there's this image of nets again, collecting collecting moisture. And so it's about creating life. And you have all these different images of things being captured, birds, water, whatever, for different reasons in nets. And then, of course, what goes unmentioned, it's the only mention of Chile in the whole novel. And what goes unmentioned in that mention of Chile is everything else about the history of that country and the recent history of that country um, and the dictatorship there and the disappeared people. And it's it has obvious resonances to the situation of Israel-Palestine, resonances to other conflicts. And it just goes unmentioned, but it's it's a it was a hammer to me when I read it. Sorry, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, no, it's um, it's and it's interesting. So I've had the good fortune of being in the Atacama Desert, and there's something about that landscape as well that reflects some of the the, the, the landscape in the Middle East. And you know, if we come back to to, to Mitterrand and, and the nets, just you mm-hmm. know, to, two echoes of that. So Mitterrand, for, for anyone who's, who's who who followed his policies uh, with regard to the Middle East, uh, Mitterrand was actually uh, succeeded um, a long uh, line of, um, of French um, uh, presidents who had a very um, pro-Arab uh, uh, view in terms of foreign policy. Uh, Mitterrand actually was quite a strong proponent of the state of Israel um, and had in fact visited Israel on a number of occasions, but did break some new ground in recognizing the PLO as being the sort of uh, the, the, the the key body, the representative of um, of the Palestinian people. And he was a very strong um, proponent of the um, Camp David Accords. So even that is left left on left on said. And then this idea of birds being caught, it's really interesting. So one of the, the, the interesting things about this McCann, this book about McCann, but his other books is there's a thread of, of, of their symmetry or repetition that runs across the books. So, for example, on this idea of birds and, and nets, um, in um, uh, Apérignon, there's obviously a, a, there's a, a, a scene where uh, Petit, the um, the famous uh, French uh, tightrope walker, walks uh, walks the um, the tightrope line um, across the um, across the valley, um, and Petit is actually the central character in uh, Let the Great World Spin. The novel um, basically is um, is um, is set in New York in '74. 
and it's set around his uh, his famous um, breaking in uh, to the twin towers and then crossing them on a on a tightrope. Uh, but even deeper than that, in apparently you know, when he's when he's making that walk, uh, he tries to release a, a, a what's supposed to be a dove, but it's a pigeon. And it, it doesn't quite uh, it doesn't quite um, go to plan, and it ends up sitting on his head and sitting on his arm. Um, so in in a, in a way, it's sort of trapped. But in the Let a Great Word Spin, there's a scene where um, there's a lady who um, is um, wandering around the base of the the twin towers and is picking up the corpses of small birds who have sort of been dazed by the lights of the towers and had crashed headlong into them, like a sort of modern net. Um, and you know she's she's picking up these uh, these corpses, these birds. Uh, Petit, uh, you know. Uh, wanders past uh, surveying the area before his his tightrope walk and in the novel she hands him a feather from uh, from i think it was a a black-throated warbler and so you've got this, these i mean that's a very mm-hmm. very specific piece of symmetry or repetition now what's interesting to me is how much of that um, was mccann aware of before he started writing this novel or are those things a deliberate repetition uh, you know is this actually just him honoring the complexity of stories across his own books or actually is this something a bit more like the fibonacci sequence which is you know if you look hard enough you'll see it you'll see it everywhere <laughs> so I, I'm going to make I'm going to make a uh, what I think is a claim on behalf of of writers here and say that he definitely knows what he's doing there and like <laughs> and is and is having a little bit of like you know it, it, it what's interesting what's 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 really interesting it's one of the things that I just love about about reading literature in general is is it almost doesn't matter on one hand like because you could if you make the connection then it's a real connection right and that's part of the point of this of this novel itself mm. is like if you make the connection. Then it's a real connection, and what is that? What is the, what is your openness to that connection and of those stories tell you, tell you about about what you're thinking about your own relationship to these stories and about what these stories mean to each other and what these stories mean in the world? And also, yeah. like you don't you don't write a whole novel about about Philippe Petit and then put him in as a as an important image and figure in another in, in another novel. It's only two novels later or one novel later, and and not be have it on your mind like. You know, yeah. for all I know, it's, it's like some of his cast-off material from that novel. <laughs> but, 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 but it is interesting. I, I have this vision of so McCann famously writes in a little nook, like a little nook in his his home in, in in New York. It's like a literally a tiny little sort of cupboard he's taken the door mm-hmm. the door off. And I have I, I was thinking about this book as I was going through it, and you know, having read you know his other his other work. When I was coming across these threads across books, I was thinking, you know, when he wrote, you know, um, Let the Great World Spin in the sort of mid to late 90s, and he set it around Philippe Petit's um, uh, tightrope walk and this uh, these birds crashing into the uh, into mm-hmm. the towers. And, you know, it, it, could he have possibly imagined that, you know, over 20 years later, he would be writing a book about, um, about two men whose stories he'd stumbled across mm-hmm. uh, as, as sort of, you know, uh, narrators of a, a small part of the conflict in the Middle East and then when he starts to research this he t- finds that you know Philippe Petit had also done a tightrope walk uh, you know uh, at, uh, you know at the height of this conflict which also involved mm-hmm. you know a, a a bird being trapped so so I think so for me there's sort of I wonder if if his 
I mean, the way he writes, because it's so expansive and because he goes so broad in seeking out other stories, is it just inevitable that he mm. turns some of this over? Now, on the other hand, I think what is very interesting to me is that this this novel, his, his previous novel, Transatlantic, uh, is a three part um, three part novel. It, it it largely tells the story or uh, through the, of the the, the Irish uh, peace priest process conflict resolution mm-hmm. process, and the last chapter is largely about Senator George Mitchell. So again, thinking about you know uh, the Irish American connection, of yeah. course, you know Mitchell. Um, and Mitchell shows Mi- up in a Paragon as well. Um, and Mitchell shows up in a Paragon, but it was Mitchell who um, uh, you know in working with McCann on on um, Transatlantic said to him, if you think Northern Ireland's complex, you should really look at you know the Middle East. So, so here's an interesting. Here's a character in in his book who's now introducing him to 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 his his next book. So he's sort of <laughs> following the arc of that character because, of course, after Mitchell left Northern Ireland, he went on to become the special envoy to to the to the Middle East. So, so there's this there's a beautiful honouring of complexity and the sort of slightly unwieldy patchwork of 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 um, of stories uh, that you know I think if you just if if you if you open yourself up to it you can find connections and I think that's what he's trying to tell us about conflict and stories yeah. and conflict there is always a way to connect with with another through your story or their story I think that's a a really good way of putting that I have to say I love the phrase unwieldy patchwork <laughs> I think that it, it's a it's a really useful way of thinking about this novel and it. It, it it's a phrase that almost sounds slightly pejorative, but it really isn't because the unwieldiness, I think, is really important to the success of this novel. Yeah. You're, it, it demands that you you piece some things together and you you piece together some of those big public moments, whether it's Philippe Petit and this this artistic and act of daring or or um, Mitchell and this, and this act of public uh, diplomacy, international diplomacy, or whether it's the private acts of these these two men who are the protagonists of the of the novel, yeah. um, living with their families, dealing with their grief, dealing with their anger, dealing with their hatred, dealing with their love, all of these things. And that intersection between those public narratives and these private narratives becomes a very interesting thing. And yeah. also with the historical narratives. Absolutely, and, and and it's you make a really interesting point about the, the book itself um, is a is an instrument. It, it, I, I think it's a deliberately it's deliberately complex and challenging, and it can feel like an unwieldy patchwork because that's what conflict is. That's what life is. The Northern Ireland peace process and the Good Friday Agreement is an unwieldy patchwork. Mm-hmm. You know, simply because that's what life is, and I I, I think. What McCann does is he he refuses to to be drawn into a reductionist um, a, a reductionist form of storytelling. I think he is he is honouring the the complexity and the unwieldy patchwork of what it means to be human. If we're going to be honest about about that, that the, sometimes there are connections to be made. Sometimes there are connections that will be made in time, but at the moment seem senseless. And some things just don't seem and never will connect. And and that's and I think that's that's okay. But it's 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 finding the meaning in that. I think is is the, the message that I took away from this this book. Yeah, there's a generosity in that approach mm. um, to the to constructing a novel, to writing a novel as well. That there's he doesn't um, he doesn't tell you ever 
what to think about these stories and none of his characters ever tell you what to think about the story that is being told or that they're that they as characters and in this case as real people are are living through which is not always the case in novels you know but that he he places these images he's very focused on these images or on these moments and and what they tell in and of themselves or what what you can pull from them and how you you know it does demand i think you're right in saying it demands a lot from from you as a reader um, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of a thrill again, to to it, have it that is, demanded it, it, of you yeah it is a thrill and i think again it, it's it's also a it's also an instrument to, you know i i i think it's a very deliberately honoring the complexity of what both these men are are trying to navigate you know th- these are these are these are on one level on one level their stories are are very simple um but on a, on on any real level they are extraordinary extraordinarily complex you know their own stories are complex and um, this their their stories together of what happened to them are complex the story of the conflict uh, in in which those those um, those events uh, played out is extraordinarily uh, complex. So I think again, there's something about the book itself honouring that complexity. You know, it's 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 generous, and it's it's real. It's 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 refusing to to kowtow to the idea that I can explain this all away in a very simple linear narrative, which yeah. p- will probably give us give us all some comfort. Uh, but I don't think uh, you know. I think his. His view is, I'm telling a story. I'm a truth teller. You know, I think that's why he likes the fiction, nonfiction, which is, you know, he, he jokes sometimes about, you know, I think I read one of the interviews he said to to, to Rami um, that, uh, you know, you know, you, know I, I, you need to know I'm a, a novelist. And he said, I, I make shit up. But his books aren't always about making shit up. All of his books have a thread of nonfiction about them. They, they and, care. And, and they care really deeply about the real things of yes. the real world, don't yes. they? And they care yes. about this. is This is where that storytelling thing that we were talking about at the beginning comes back. Is like that. It's it's not. I'm not a fiction writer, and his you know is is kind of what I read into that. I prefer the term storytelling or storyteller. And it, and the, and the reason is because, because it's insisting on those, on the contact with the real world. So Virginia Woolf says in um, a room of one's own, she, she talks about the fact that, that a novel is always connected like a spider web um, to real life. Um, and it may only be touching real life at the corners, but it's still connected. And, and I think, I think Colin McCann is really deeply interested in in how securely the storytelling is connected to the real world as a real thing. Um, while you were saying that, I, I turned to story 1001 right at the heart of the novel. And I'm not going to read out the whole story, but it, it it is a single sentence. It's a very long sentence. and And it has a lot of different people and places and things in it, but it is very f- tightly focused as well. But it, it ends um, with this idea of storytelling and and some of the the um, notions of honoring and complexity that you were just talking about. So I kind of want to just pick up in the middle uh, and read the end of this sentence, really. the last. I'm going to read the last third or so of it. And he's, he's talking about people gathering. And he says, having come from as far apart as Belfast and Kyushu, Paris and North Carolina, 
Santiago, and Brooklyn, Copenhagen, and Terezin, on an ordinary day at the end of October, foggy, tinged with cold, to listen to the stories of Bassam and Rami, and to find within their stories another story, a song of songs, discovering themselves, you and me, in the t- stone-tiled chapel where we sit for hours, eager, hopeless, buoyed, confused, cynical, complicit, silent, our memories imploding, our synapses skipping, in the gathering dark, remembering, while listening, all of those stories that are yet to be told. I mean, he just tells you right there in that moment. Um, it's a real thing. Of, of and it's it's a it's accounting for a real event of people listening and sharing stories together. Um, but he's also telling you what your experience or and giving you a kind of permission to have that experience of reading his novel is because you go through a lot, all those emotions, that cynicism that you, you know. There's parts of this novel you're like no, and you get really cynical about it. And there's parts where you feel hopeless, and there's parts where you feel buoyed, and there's parts where you feel eager to read more, and there's parts where you're like, and and it's it gives you permission to read in a way that I I just think is. That's what it, the the generosity uh, of his writing really comes in there, I think, and it connects to these these issues of complexity and and of honoring the the realness of stories yeah. and the, and what matters about stories. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting. I mean, I was just you know his his books. I was just thinking about his books. You know, they they all have multiple storylines. You know, they all have diverse perspectives. They all have wide sympathies. So he doesn't, as you you made a really interesting point, he doesn't take a position, um, but he's sympathetic. So that that sense of generosity and and sympathy, uh, I think, again, the the book is a, 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 in many ways, I think is a a love letter uh, from him to to the, the, the beautiful complexity that is life, that is stories, but also the power of stories. So, you know, I've been lucky enough since I graduated from the, the Washington Ireland program in 1997, where I, for the very first time um, that summer in, in Washington, you know, I had the opportunity and, and the space to listen to stories of people like me who were completely unlike me and, and to be able to really l- listen in a, in a sort of safe space. And then, you know, my connection to the program led me to support for a sister program that grew out to the, the South Africa uh, Washington program, which was a, a, a very similar concept, bringing young black and, uh, and white South Africans again to Washington around this idea of storytelling as a, as a tool of leadership in, um, in societies where, where conflict existed. And so then act, being a third party and listening to their stories and watching them listen to each other's stories in a way that they, they hadn't been able to do at home for practical or political or psychological reasons and then mm. you know helping to um to interview and support the early years of what uh, is, is called the new story leadership program which is the this the version of these programs for um for israel and palestine students um and again seeing them have that and what what, what they have in common is their story mm-hmm. they all have a story you, you can strip everything away you can strip take you can take everything from them, but you can never ever take their story. And they all have a story, so that that is their that is their starting position. And I think that's what he's you know that that is the point that he's making, which is it, it's you know a story can seem like a very small thing, but ultimately that's what binds us all. 
you know, in, in the end, that's all there is. It's that Muriel Rooks there um, uh, uh, quote, um, you know, the world's not made of atoms, it's made of, of stories. And, you know, the world was in that that room that you just um, you just uh, you just spoke about. Yeah, yeah. This I this brings me to maybe that one of the the last images that I want to talk about. I mean, maybe we start thinking about the last things we want to say about the novel for for this um, this episode at, at that point. But like the um, the way in which um, so there's all these different images, and you talked at the beginning about symmetry and patterns, and 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 some of those are ones that you make yourself as a reader that maybe even Colin McCann hasn't thought about, but he's created the stories in, 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 in creating the stories and placing the stories. He's created the space for you to make those patterns, make those connections. But then there's also the ones that he's, he's placed very carefully and deliberately. And there's lots of those moving around, swirling around in this novel. And one of the ones that really stands out to me for the complexity of it. And that I think becomes in a way, or it could be thought of as in a way as, this, as a symbol of the role of storytelling that you're telling is the one of olive wood. He spends a lot of time in various places talking about olive wood and the different uses of, of olive and why it's used in different ways and, and what type of wood it is and, and how kind of what a remarkable substance it is, basically. And it seems to me that that in certain places, and I won't go into this in detail because there's plenty of novel for people to read, um, but it seems to me in certain places, olive is, you know, the olive branch is a, is a symbol of peace, as we all know. And he talks about the olive branch and the dove and Picasso's image of that. But he talks about, you know, the olive wood that is used to make bridges because it doesn't rot. Mm. And, and he, and he talks about Arafat giving his speech where he says, don't let the olive branch fall from my hand. Mm. And, and all of these different things and all these, all these facts about the wood and these different images of the wood and, and, and olive wood itself kind of becomes to me anyway, a, a, a kind of symbol for that, that the strength. I suppose, in the permanence, I suppose, of, mm. of um, storytelling and exactly the ways you're talking ab- about there. Um, I, I wonder what, what final kind of things you might like to say as we wrap up our, this episode of Novel Romantics, Shane. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think, I think this is a very, very important book in the context of, of what's happening in the world and our the urgent need for us to, to, to find new ways to tell old stories. And to um, listen to those stories. And, and, and I was just going to say, and, and to find new ways, to, new ways to listen. Because, you know, there we are, we're in danger of either drowning each other out or being caught in echo chambers. And, you know, the, the, this book sort of builds on a, on a, on a tradition um, of what you might call public narrative, which is uh, Professor Marshall Gantz at, at Harvard, who, you know, uh, uh, really influenced the Obama, Obama administration, a, a much celebrated uh, social movement leader. Uh, and he talks about the, the importance of, of stories in, in, in leading movements or in creating movements. And he talks about stories on, or basically on, on three levels, the story of me, like what what is my story? Um, the story of we. So what connects us? What connects me to you? And then the story of now. What 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 is the story we now need to tell, or we need to retell, or refashion? And I I I think um, we we need to find a way to tell better stories or old stories in different ways and, and we need to find better ways to listen to stories and accept that that will take time 
accept that stories are complex because when we don't honor the complexity, we get a reductionist view of the world and we get a reductionist set of reductionist um, responses to very, very complex issues. So I, I think it's um, I think it's a hugely, hugely, hugely important um, novel. I hope enough people you know take up the challenge to really think deeply about that and that in time you know it will be um, it will be seen as uh, i think a, a, a love story to to stories and and all their all their glory and all the complexity and and all their possibility this is what's interesting about the novel which is we've ended up talking about the the novel the the the, phys- the, the novel itself mm-hmm. as a as a as a tool you know this 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 book is about it's a it's a manifestation of what the book is about, you know, yeah. in, in, in many yeah. ways, and I think that's that's a that's a testament to it. Um, you know, it, its greatness lies in in what it symbolizes, uh, as much as uh, you know the story it it, it tries to it tries to tell. But yeah. you know, Ireland's relationship with the First World War, uh, Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland's relationship with the Civil War. Is a is a is a, a is an example of the failure of storytelling of good yeah. storytelling. It's a failure of multiple storylines. It's a failure of diverse perspectives. It's a failure of wide sympathies. It's a failure of generosity in storytelling. Yeah. And you know that this book represents everything that you know. Sadly, you know the partition of Ireland and Ireland's you know the precursor to that Ireland's relationship with the First World War. We've never created the space to to tell the stories and listen to stories that need to be told, and you know it's 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 a it's a it's a damn it's a damn shame, and that still echoes. But but this is but this is uh, I think this whole thing about generosity and diversity mm-hmm. and perspectives, it's you know it's you know, so badly missing. Mm. I think I think I think too many of us are afraid to seek out other other perspectives or multiple storylines it's it necessitates a vulnerability right like you got to make yourself vulnerable in a way that that people don't want to feel exactly and it's hard work you know it's hard work you know there's an absence of honesty about the complexity of life there's an absolute honesty about the complexity of the issues we face you know, we've talked about you know how that you know leadership is a social is socially constructed, and it's mm-hmm. much e- leader much easier for leaders to you know, categorize everything as a crisis and then pitch themselves yeah, as a sort yeah, of command yeah. to as control a savior leader who's come in, yeah, you know, rather than to stand up and go, it's all very complicated, so we're going to have to figure this out together. I don't have all the answers. I mean, it's just you know, it's not it just doesn't it just doesn't um, it doesn't fly, and I just think this is such a brave. I think what he does is very is is very is very. Uh, me brief. too. I, was, I just thought this is such a terrific. Uh, well, you know that already. It's such a terrific piece of yeah, literature. I mean, this is this is one I keep coming back to. And again, did you read you Dancer? Know, no, I didn't read uh, Dancer. But I'll tell you his book that doesn't get people don't talk about a lot actually, which is a beautiful little book, is Thirteen Ways of Looking. All oh, right. Which I would highly recommend. Which is a very very unusual a little book. It's a um, uh, it's it's a sort of novella about this sort of retired judge in his uh, his eighty his eighties, and it's all set on one around one um, one day about his his journey from his apartment to to meet his son at a a, a restaurant, and it all happens between this mm-hmm. you know that morning and him almost making it to the to the restaurant. It's almost a sort of a a sort of whodunit thriller, but even in that book, the thirteen ways of looking, basically. Even within that, the, the narrow confines of just that morning, what it's about is there are different, so many different ways to experience or interpret 
a single event. Mm-hmm. So again, coming back to that uh, honouring complexity, forcing you to sort of think outside yourself. Again, I think because of the stuff that I did with conflict resolution and the stuff I do with leaders, that that's sort of speaks to me a lot because I yeah. think that's what good conflict resolution is about. I think that's what good leadership is about too. Shane Carmichael, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, episode of Novel Romantics. It's been great chatting to you about the novel and I hope our listeners look forward to reading it if they haven't or have had some new ways to think about it if they have read it. Um, Join me again next month for another episode of Novel Romantics. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Shut That's up, helpful. Shane. Yeah, keep it down. That's <laughs> <helpful>. <laughs>